The lifespan of a sleuth from the golden age of detective fiction is difficult to estimate. These tend to be creatures of extremes. Either they exist for a concentrated period of time before the writer moves on to other characters or literary endeavours, as Dorothy L. Sayers did with Lord Peter Whimsey, or they endure for decades and dozens of titles, often barely ageing to allow for this surreal lifespan such as in the case of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. It's much rarer to find a detective who matures and changes with their creator, but in the case of our subject today, this is what happened. Albert Campion first appeared at the height of the interwar popularity of the classic crime novel in 1929, and his last outing from his author's pen was a posthumously published book from 1968. Over nearly four decades, he reflected her changing interests, life circumstances, ideas about crime fiction and approach to writing. He is not frozen like some of his contemporaries, but variable and surprising, and thus sometimes hard to appreciate upon just one or two chance encounters. That's why today we're exploring the evolution of Marjorie Allingham. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. I think the best place to start is at the beginning. Who was Marjorie Allingham in the late 1920s when she sat down to write the first Albert Campion book? She just got married. She was in her mid-twenties and that was in 1927. This is Julia Jones author of a wonderful biography of Allingham, and someone with a great deal of experience in tracing the way that Albert Campion and his creator changed over the years that they spent together. An important thing to understand about this young, newlywed version of Allingham, Julia says, is that she was not a novice writer by any means. The thing is that she'd been writing for years. I mean, she'd been writing since she was a child. And this is the other aspect of Marjorie's professionalism, that she was born into a family where writing was what you did to earn your living. Her father was a prolific serial story writer. And until the first Campion and long after, you know, she did every sort of what you might call mechanical writing. So her aunt Maud, who was a great lady in the days of the silent films, she ran a film fan magazine. And one of Marjorie's jobs was to go to a screening and then write up the story so it could be in the magazine. So you know, she was absolutely aware of writing as just, you know, a thing you did to earn your living. I think when we hear that someone is born into a family of writers, we imagine something a bit like Bloomsbury, with people wafting around penning a highbrow novel every few years and drawing on their extensive literary contacts and perhaps their private income in order to make ends meet. The Allinghams weren't like this at all, though. Marjorie had absorbed from her father, a former journalist turned newspaper serial writer, that in order to maintain a steady living as a writer, one must be professional, consistent, versatile and prolific. And so to have free time on one's honeymoon to write whatever you fancied. Well, that was quite a luxury, if you were an Allingham. That marked a change in her life, that she'd got married. It was like a sort of holiday treat to write The Crime of Black Dudley. She and her husband Pip had swapped houses with her parents, 
Herbert and Emily. So the older ones had gone to London to stay in Marge and Pip's flat and, you know, see their friends and, and catch up with editors because they were writing as well. And Marge and Pip were in the country in Leatheringham in Suffolk. And it was a fun thing to do. And, and it feels like a fun thing to do. But the real shift in Marjorie's ideas about fiction actually came earlier, before she ever put pen to paper on the first Campion novel, The Crime at Black Dudley. She had had this extraordinary experience early, when her in her sort of mid-late teens, when they were having a holiday on Mersey Island. And they were doing that thing like a seance. You have the glass, you put your fingers on it, and you ask questions and you have letters all round. We used to play it at school sometimes. Mersey Island is quite an evocative place. I, I think, again, sense of place is important, not just as a setting, but almost as a character sometimes, that, that the place, it's putting something into the story. So, you know, the book wouldn't be the same if it was somewhere else. But so Mersey Island, East Mersey, quite spooky, where Mahala Sabang Baron Gould's very strange sort of murder story was written. They were doing this and they, they were interviewing smugglers and excise men and a witch and an innocent murdered heroine. And when Marjorie was there, it just spelled out page after page of interview. Those pages are actually in the Allingham archive. It was a real thing. I'm only going on about that because in, in a way, that's where she perhaps began to see herself as not just somebody who writes to order. If her father or mother were writing a story, it's got to be 4,000 words and it's got to be there by next Thursday. And if it isn't any good, you'll have to close up the story or extend the story or whatever. Whereas this was inspiration. You know, this was a story coming from outside and that's quite a different thing. You know, it makes you feel that the characters actually exist in a different sphere. They're not just made up. They're not cutouts. You know, they're not like puppets. They have a, a vibrancy. They have a, a life of their own. And I think that must have been a very formative and extraordinary experience. The product of that extraordinary experience Marjorie had with the glass and the ghosts speaking to her on Mersey Island was Blacker Chief Dick, a novel about 17th century smugglers which was published in 1923 when she was just 19. When she came to pen her first detective novel then, she had this other experience to draw on, beyond her family's craft of writing fiction to order. But I think that's sort of the other side of Marjorie, and that's where one can see her moving away from being a proper hack writer. Nothing wrong with that. People have got to be entertained. No, I'm not being snooty. And one thing I have learned about studying Marjorie's family is not to be a literary snob. Gradually, as she became more knowing what she was doing, as it were, she was very clear about the sort of two sides of her writer's job. One was to entertain her reader, and the other was to say something for herself. You weren't just entertaining the reader, and you weren't just looking at your own psyche the whole time. You had to do both in the sort of novel she was writing. That said, in The Crime at Black Dudley, we don't really see Albert Campion fully formed, or even clearly at all. He is a peripheral figure, a shadowy yet silly character at a country house party, who has often been said to mostly function as a parody of the aristocratic sleuths popular at the time, like Lord Peter Whimsey. Readers who try to get into Allingham by starting with the first Campion novel often find themselves confused or disappointed, I think, since her sleuth fails to take centre stage. 
it isn't until Allingham's next detective novel, 1930's Mystery Mile, that we get more of a sense of Campion as a protagonist in the way we might expect from a crime novel of this period. I mean, the next one, Mystery Mile, that's one I would quite often recommend to people if they like something quite period, quite flippant, you know, quite fast moving. That's a good one. And if you like, that's the first proper Campion, because Campion in The Crown of Black Dudley is just somebody else who happens to be in the house party. And he, he, for some reason, he just gets picked up and promoted to Mystery Mile. Campion wasn't Allingham's instant ticket to fame and fortune, though. Although the early books did well enough that the publisher was keen for more, her marriage and subsequent change in lifestyle demanded more of an income than detective fiction alone could provide. So she did what her family had always done. She worked furiously at producing whatever kind of writing editors were willing to pay for. It was great that getting married was the start of all this, but getting married was the start of very serious expenditure that she found that she wasn't just keeping herself. Once she was married and, and then she and her husband and various friends moved out to the country, so it wasn't just good enough having a fortnight in the summer. They actually then bought a house in the country. Suddenly, you know, she found that she was supporting herself, her husband, her husband's school friends, you know, and various people who looked after the household. So, you know, it was a big old thing. The Campion novels didn't begin to touch that. So she absolutely had to keep on churning stuff out for Aunt Maud. And she also wrote some sort of Edgar Wallace type serial stories under a pseudonym. So her productivity in the 30s was quite startling. I mean, you know, she really churned out the thousands and thousands of words. It was when working on a book about Marjorie's father, Herbert, Julia says, that she really began to understand the mindset of a working writer at this time. That was when I really had to learn not to think that literature is all about the Bloomsbury set or Shakespeare or whatever. You know, literature includes fiction and fiction is making things with words and you make different things with words for different people. And you don't have to say that one sort is better than another sort. You just have to say they're different. And what Herbert was doing with great conscientiousness and seriousness was writing stories for first and second generation literate people who didn't want to improve themselves. They wanted to escape. They wanted to be entertained. That's how they wanted to use their reading skills. And that's what he gave them. He gave his whole seriousness to it. He never looked down on his readers. And I think that was an important thing that Marjorie learned is you respect your readers. After the break who Marjorie became next. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero 
took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. So Marjorie Allingham came out of this incredibly workmanlike literary tradition, where fiction could be both written to order and be the product of sudden inspiration. And Albert Campion started out as a quasi-comic figure of a detective, before morphing over the next few books into something a bit more like a classic Golden Age detective, with recognisable cases and a relationship with the police. But with every new one that you read, you are aware that it is not the same as what has gone before. There is far less of a feeling of comforting repetition with Allingham, I think, as with some of her crime writer contemporaries. As a reader, the eye-opening moment for me was when I wasn't just reading them randomly on a sofa with a glass of gin. It was when I read them in order. And then you see a fascinating development. Then you start to see the variousness of the novels. And towards the end of Marjorie's life, somebody said to her, it's like one big super novel. And she was incredibly pleased. She said, oh, at last, you know, somebody's seen the point of it. And you know, she really has left us with a proper opus of work. And then once you, you sort of know what there is, then you can dot about and you can think, well, I'm in the mood for something a bit bleak or I'm in the mood for something a bit funny. You can have a different flavour depending what you're feeling like. Here's Julia with a sampling of some of those different Allingham flavours from the 1930s and 1940s. There's a period when she's a very good domestic writer. It's observing the little personality quirks that people show when they're living together. Those are the sort of mid-1930s, like... Dances in Mourning, for instance, that's a, that's a, that's a particular favourite. I might say that rather a lot, because that's one where the solution to the mystery, it's maybe not a classic detective story, but the solution to the mystery lies in an understanding of who is the responsible person in that household and who is the person who actually doesn't give a toss about anybody else. I think it's rather brilliant when the end of the puzzle, if you like, you could have worked it out just from observing how people behave in situations. She's much more sort of observational than cerebral, I'd say. Other themes recur throughout. There are novels that are very evocative of a particular moment in London's history, like Coroner's Pigeon, The Tiger in the Smoke and The China Governess. But there are also ones set in the countryside that touch on English folk stories and customs, such as Look to the Lady and The Beckoning Lady. And Campion himself remains something of an enigma, with Allingham foregrounding particular aspects of his character in different novels as her plots required, and always holding on to the tantalising mystery of his precise origins. The rich contrast between all of this, Julia says, 
is part of what makes Allingham's work so interesting to absorb in its entirety. I think she's a very, very intelligent writer and actually a very analytical writer because you can often see her books sort of balancing each other out. One book has gone quite far one way and so the next book she'll, like Fashion in Shrouds, for instance, a very, very elaborate, almost too elaborate, very consciously a novel asking you to look at the beauty of its writing. I mean, she, she decided in the end that she'd overdone the sort of beauty of the writing stuff. And so the next novel is Traitor's Purse, when you bang the hero on the head and crack on. <laughs> no time for that. You know, but, you know, they're next to each other. They're balancing each other. They're talking to each other. That's, I think, why it was very, very interesting to look at them in the context of her life. They say that you should never meet your heroes or even learn too much about them for fear that they lose their lustre. But it was in the process of working on her biography of Marjorie Allingham, having been given full access to her papers by her younger sister Joyce, that Julia found herself growing closer to Marjorie with every imperfection that was revealed. Of course you've got your own brain and your critical faculties absolutely alert, but you remember you're there because you like it and because you admire it. And finding out discreditable things or less glossy things actually makes you feel the humanity of the person. Marjorie, for me, has actually become, she's like a sort of, you know, an older sister that I never knew. I, I feel I learned so much from her. And so obviously writing about somebody like Marjorie, who was both practicing her trade, but particularly in later life, quite articulate about her trade, whilst saying it's actually not something that you do from the head, you do it from the heart. But she did have a very good head. You learn an enormous amount about how fiction works. And I loved that. That was really great. But I also felt that she had an awful lot of wisdom about life. We can see traces of this in the non-fiction books Allingham wrote alongside the Campion novels. The Oaken Heart, her account of weathering the early years of the Second World War in an Essex village, is actually what first brought Julia into contact with the Allingham family. And a later work titled The Relay covers her experiences of caring for the older generation. The most recent book I've done about Marjorie Allingham was one she didn't publish in her lifetime. It's when she had to look after her mother and her elderly aunt and her aunt's cousin when they were old and frail and cantankerous and had dementia and all that. And because Marge always liked to be observing and putting things into what she calls communicable form. She wrote a little book about it, which never got published, but Joyce gave it to me. And so when I was looking after my own mum in those sorts of situations, I pulled out Margie's book written 50 years earlier. And, you know, I just felt I learned an awful lot about end of life and care of the elderly. And, you know, so I gained far more out of it than I could ever have envisaged, ever. Because her detective, Albert Campion, is largely a cheery, aristocratic sort, and some of his adventures have comic touches, people sometimes make the mistake of assuming that Marjorie Allingham herself existed in a life of permanent sunshine and tea parties. But as Julia's biography tenderly lays out, Allingham had her fair share of troubles, not least towards the end of her life, when she had to be sectioned in order to receive treatment for breast cancer. The bright young people, as the crowd of friends and neighbours with whom Pip and Marge had cheerfully cohabited in the 1930s called themselves, were no longer quite so bright or young. 
By the time she was working on later Campion novels like Hide My Eyes and The Mind Readers, Marjorie Allingham was herself a very different person to the one who had penned The Crime at Black Dudley on her honeymoon 30 years before. That's why it can be hard to recommend a place to start for someone who has never read a Marjorie Allingham novel before. There's really no such thing as a typical one. If you didn't know her, you would almost think they were written by different people. But it isn't. It's because one's a different person when you're in your 20s than you are when you're in your 50s. And with Marge, you can see her novels. And and that's why she's very clever with Campion. They go along together. That, in a way, is what is so marvellous about Allingham's body of work. It meets you where you are in life. This has certainly been Julia's experience, from her early days reading the novels as a student at Bristol University right up to now. You see, I feel that Marge has been from those first, so I suppose when I was at Bristol, I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, (laughs) a gin and tonic and sweet danger or death of a ghost or something. Absolutely wonderful. And now, you know, I'm, I'm what Marge, I hope what Marge would call a jolly old fruit instead of a, a decaying pressed flower. She has these wonderful, wonderful vivid ways of describing people. She says there's an awful lot of, of pressed flowers out there going brown around the edges. And she said, what I want to be is a jolly old fruit. So, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely, Marge, you, you've got that. It was so sad that she didn't, she didn't get to be one, really. Um, she, it's a sad life, really, yet for somebody who, who gives over such a sort of well, most of the time, warm and positive vibe. But my God, when you get to something like Hide My Eyes, and she's, you know, she's, she's looking at evil in Hide My Eyes, that's an absolute chiller, I think. So she wasn't, you know, wasn't sort of Miss Buconic, bouncy, you know, gingham frock. Marjorie Allingham's crime novels aren't the perfect examples of the classic Golden Age detective novel, nor are they completely the intricate, multi-layered puzzles produced by some of her contemporaries. They are patchy in places, a little chaotic, with flashes of brilliance that are, in my opinion, unmatched. But above all, when you are reading them, you feel like you are in touch with someone who understood what it meant to try and to keep trying, to end up as a jolly old fruit rather than a dreary pressed flower. This episode of She Done It was written and hosted by me, Caroline Crampton. Many thanks to my guest, Julia Jones. Her biography of Marjorie Allingham is available now through all good bookshops, and I would also highly recommend her book about Herbert Allingham, 50 Years in the Fiction Factory. You can find links to these books and all the others mentioned in the episode at shedoneitshow.com slash the evolution of Marjorie Allingham. I publish transcripts of every episode, including this one too. Find them all at shedoneitshow.com slash transcripts. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more from me and my guests, the best way to do that is to join the She Done It book club. This is the paid membership scheme that runs alongside the podcast and which will get you extra episodes, as well as the satisfaction of knowing you've helped keep the show on the air. There will be a bonus episode soon with more behind-the-scenes details from Julia about how she came to meet the Allingham family and write her biography, so members will have that to look forward to as well. Find out more and sign up at shedoneitbookclub.com slash join. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. 
member support for the She Done It book club from Conor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.